This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of the Advent Sermon Series. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. We long for thine appearing. My name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis. Um, I have before me the, the text is open to Isaiah, and it is Advent season. And I was assigned by Derek and approved by Jeremy to uh, give, hopefully, thought to the four servant songs of Isaiah. So some of you may be very familiar with it. Some of you may never heard of those things. Uh, but we're going to give a kind of a biblical bird's eye view of Isaiah and how those four songs that appear in 42, 49, 50, 52, and 53 uh, impact us today. So I am... Uh, Derek said, man, you're fired up. I'm fired up <laughs> because Isaiah is one of my, f- probably the favorite book of mine in the text. And it is called the fifth gospel for a reason. The, the, the words he, and the things he sees roll into the New Testament writers. They are constantly quoting him or echoing him. It reaches past time and space to actually be presented the new heavens and the new earth that you hear and John write about in Revelation, Isaiah sees them. Isaiah writes in the 700s. Uh, his ministry was long. He served at least five kings. Uh, a few we'll see today in the text. But, but the, that, that nation that he was in geopolitically had been very prosperous up until a certain point. Um, and so these, all these good times and, and then all of a sudden horrific things start occurring. And when I say that, we say good times, but, but if we look underneath all that prosperity, there was, there was horrific uh, treatment of the marginal and the poor. And so Isaiah, like the other prophets, will wait on justice uh, to come, and he begs the people of God to, to act justly, to, to, to follow the righteous standard of God. And all the while, we begin to, begin to see something that is unseen, and that is that one will come who will fulfill the righteousness of God and bring justice to the earth, things that we can't do. And so the four servant songs are going to put you in a dilemma where you will have to identify who the servant is. And once you've made that dilemma, you will be placed with two choices. And you'll see that when we come to that in in those portions of text, in those servant songs. But the, the prophet Isaiah then sees what I will tell you many of us have trouble today holding on to, and that is two realities. So, so, and most of us can't hold but one of them, and that is the things that we see. Everything tangible, everything observant by our senses, the outward world, the carpet I'm on, the desk, everything about this seen world we can relate to. That is our reality. But we are called, and in particular, Isaiah holds it as if it's woven together, the other reality, and that is the unseen creator God holds sway over everything seen. And sometimes we just drop that because of circumstances, and sometimes the, the, the darkness overwhelms us and doubts, and we'll see that in the text today. So we'll take a quick run at Isaiah, buckle up, and I'm going to go fast. Uh, and, and first service, I told him uh, there's a reason I, had, I love that Dave and others read from Isaiah 40, because when I get there, I, I, it overwhelms me. <laughs> the thought of it crushes me. 
And you'll see, you heard it, the news that he's bringing is that God is coming. And that's what Advent is. We're expecting him to come. We relive the advent of his birth, the, 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 the coming. And so, man, when we get to 40, it, it just explodes in hope. So let's pray and we'll get to it. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, for providentially placing me before your text that is open to the scroll of Isaiah. Praise you for the vision you gave him to see beyond his own time, 700 years and then even beyond, and to see a servant who would perfectly obey your will to make the sins of the world be forgiven. Lead us there now through your spirit. It's in the name of Christ Jesus, I pray, amen. So we, we get a context early on that, that Isaiah writes, like I said, while pressure is mounting a geopolitically, but also so much corruption inside the nation. And I've got a couple of maps, of course, uh, that'll help us geopolitically. There's one global map kind of of the time where you will see Assyria more or less dead in the, in the middle. And, and that Assyrian oppression became in the 740s. They began to rise again as a, as a power as Tiglath-Pileser uh, III became king and do began dominating the area. But there were two other nations pressing, once we get to Isaiah 7, that were pressing on Judah, and that's the, see Aram there, Damascus, uh, Syria, if we want to say that, Assyrian Empire was north of them. They, the, the kingdom of Aram and, and the kingdom of Israel, joined together in a pact to fight of course, the Assyrians, like if we're stronger if we bind together. Well, those two kings of that area then put pressure in, in Isaiah 7 on the king at the time to join their coalition. And you will see that Isaiah will, will come to him and say, you should just trust God. Don't make pacts with, with anyone, any foreign nation. Don't Just trust, just rely on him. And he doesn't. So Isaiah begins to see faithless kings and a faithful king. He begins to see kings later on that will falter in, in 37, 38, when it's Hezekiah's turn to withstand an enemy. Uh, he's faithful for a moment, but then he waffles and doubts, and, and we begin to see those things. And, 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 uh, and Isaiah forecasts those, like, like he's a man standing on a beach at night, and you know how dark the ocean is when that sun's gone down. It's just, it's just pitch black. And he'll see the chaos and the, and the disturbances and the, and the death, and he'll see nations rise and fall, and, and, he, and he'll see these things, and, and kings, regime changes, socioeconomic pressures. He'll see all those things, recessions. He'll see injustices, but he's constantly raising his eyes to the horizon from which the sun will rise. He never loses hope because God keeps lifting his gaze to beyond. And so he gives us this message that we too grasp the hope. And we see that then geopolitically and certainly in his own setting in chapter one, in really just one verse, verse four, a last sinful nation, mm, a nation that is actually weighed down by its iniquity. You, you are actually offspring of evildoers. In other words, it's generational. It's not just you. Everyone is sinful. Sin, sons who act corruptly and therefore abandon, like leave the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and they, they turn away from Him. 
And then in chapter one also, then it breaks it apart into a, a religious order and then this socio, if you want to say government order, and neither one is good. Isaiah says quickly that, that stop bringing your sacrifices because I am tired of them because you're just going through the motions of religion. It is a rote religion. You, you aren't, don't have any heart. Can you imagine if we lock the doors of the axis? The Lord told us to shut it down because nobody here is bringing their heart to worship. You just can't imagine, but that's what's being said to these people because they are just checking things off. And yet you will hear an invitation in between this look at religion and then look at government to seek justice for the people to actually come be just, to, to actually derush, to, to wear a path out to justice that you travel there so often. Stop oppressing the, the orphan and the widow. But then when we look at the government, we see it's not what's happening. You who used to be full of justice, now you're murderers. You used to be pure silver, now you're filled with dross. You used to be pure water, now you drank diluted water. Your rulers are actually rebels. Their companions are thieves. It'd be like us saying the Congress is a bunch of thieves, only interested in themselves. Everyone there loves a bribe. They chase their own reward. No one defends the orphan. No one hears a widow's plea. So he begins to press this saying then, but, but you, that city in that shape, you will be redeemed with justice. And you begin to think as a reader, how in the world is this place that I just described going to be redeemed? They are beyond redeemable, it seems. Ah, chapter two opens with his gaze at the horizon about how that might happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be risen, will actually rise up over all the other hills and nations will stream to it. It will stream to it because people will say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he himself may teach us his ways. In other words, God is coming. People streaming, defying gravity as they go uphill to Jerusalem to sit and listen to one who is God speak and teach from Jerusalem. And in my mind, we begin to even hear whispers of the servant. Chapter 3, though, brings us back to the, to the scene where that may be the unseen reality that we have trouble holding on to. We can certainly view the scene, and that looks like our nation crumbling around us, and, and Judah is given that um, kind of this picture of one who leans on God as a crutch, but now the crutch is taken away because of their faithlessness, and they are going to stumble and fall, and yet his gaze rises again in chapter 4, and we begin to see that a branch of the Lord, a branch, becomes messianic, that, that this twig, this sprout is coming, and, and he will be beautiful and, and glorious and fruitful. In fact, it makes mention that another exodus will occur because of him, that people will come toward him and be freed so much so that, that a canopy covers them for protection and people stream to it. But chapter five brings us back to the scene, the, the, the things that we know are true. And that is that God in his grace prepared Israel like, like a fine vineyard, planted choice produce there, expecting it to, to burst forth with red and, and purplish grapes. 
He put a wall around it to protect them. He put a permanent structure in the middle to fortify it. He was so sure that they would receive this grace that he carved a wine vat, a place that you would make wine, put the grapes in and press them in the midst of it. And it says that they brought forth not good fruit, but basically in the Hebrews, stink berries, bad fruit. They, they, they spurned the grace of God, everything that they had, and turned to everything around them because then a series of woes against the greed and against the self-reliant and against those who inflict pain on others and oppression, they, they begin to act in our sinfulness. So much so that by the end of chapter 5, darkness envelops the land. A darkness that I think can be felt because the illustration there in the text in, in 5.30 is that you are on the sea and the sea is dark, but you look to the land where certainly there'll be some lights and there's no lights on the land. It is utter darkness. And into that darkness, verse 6 of chapter, I mean of Isaiah 6a says a king dies, Uzziah. Uzziah had ruled for 52 years. He had brought peace and prosperity and expanded the borders, but now he, he himself has been quarantined away for several years while his son Jotham co-regents with him because he in his own pride tried to make sacrifice, and, and when doing so, he was struck with leprosy. But the king is dead. But at that moment, it says that Isaiah saw the Lord seated on a throne, that that's the real king, that we see the seen world and we're constantly able to touch it. But the unseen truth is the Lord is on the throne seated there and that he's not left us alone, but the train of his robe fills the temple. In other words, he is with us in the midst of this. It looks like we're abandoned, but we're not and the people should hear that as he is commissioned then to go to the people who have hard hearts and ears that can't hear. He says, I will go. And as he goes, we begin to see the seen world again in seven and eight where, where the king Ahaz, now the grandson of the man who just died, takes the throne when those pressures from the north are occurring, when Assyria comes and where Aram and Israel had joined together saying, you know what, Ahaz, if you don't join us, we will assassinate you and put our own man in the place of you. And guess what? The Davidic line would be threatened. So the word there to Ahaz in Isaiah 7 is house of David. That alone. And he's given great comfort. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And Ahaz rejects that. He's out making sure there's water supply ample for the siege that's coming. Might sound prudent. Isaiah says, trust in the Lord. In fact, ask for a sign. And, and as the Lord God had given Moses a sign, what is that in your hand, a staff? He asked him to give him any sign he wanted. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I don't want a sign. Well, you'll give him, be given one anyway. And the sign is going to be this, that in your realm there, a virgin will be with a child. And the child's name will be called Emmanuel. There will be one there that represents the fact that God is with us. And you must trust that Ahaz. Ahaz rejects it utterly, along with all the officials. And God says that by the time that child is old enough to be weaned to eat solid food, 
Those two northern tribes will be gone. And guess what? In 732 and 722 BC, they are erased from the face of the earth by the Assyrians. The very nation that now Ahaz pays tribute to. Not God, but Assyria. So we see the scene. We wait on the unseen. Chapter 8 tells us that the scene gets so tight that, that, that it's like a flood, that the Assyrians come over all the land and, in fact, get up to the neck of Jerusalem, right up to the gates, in fact. We'll see that in chapters 37 and 38. And when it's up to the neck, it says that Jerusalem will be spared. And this word is used again in the suffering and the sparing where 40-something cities are devastated by the Assyrians. Emmanuel, that God is with us in the suffering. He's there as the Assyrians move across the land. In fact, if we know the truth of the unseen is what? That he's holding sway over it. And this faithless king gives way in chapter 9 to one who is faithful. And the land that was utterly dark is going to see a great light in Galilee of the nations. And this one who is coming to bring that light is going to be born to us as a child, a son. And the government will rest upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father, eternal, prince of peace. There will be no end nor decrease to his government of peace. And on the throne of David and over that kingdom, he will reign to establish justice and righteousness. That's the king who is coming. That's the king who has been promised, the one who he sees from a distance. And he keeps his gaze on that, even though Ahaz is horribly faithless, and the Assyrians come, and the Assyrians in their own pomp and might, as we all do, believe that they are the ones who create the rain. They are rainmakers. In fact, the text says that they are the axe in which God handles it, but they believe that the axe acts on its own. In other words, it's an axe head that is just wheeling around, and we're self-reliant. And God says, no. In fact, you're so proud that you will be cut down such that at the end of chapter 10, there is nothing in the land, and you need to picture this, but a clear-cut forest. Everything raised up is cut down. Everything big is torn down. The trees that were mighty Assyrians are stumps, and they are burnt, so they are charred. And once again, we say, how can we move forward? Because in chapter 11, Isaiah sees it out of a stump a charred ruin where there should be no life. A shoot, a small sprout, will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And Isaiah, I believe, doesn't include David in this because every king after David has become faithless. He goes back to the source and says, from him, God's promise that an heir will reign on the throne of David forever is going to be accomplished. And this branch whose roots will bear fruit, guess what? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and he will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and the spirit of the knowledge of the Lord. He will act in the fear of the Lord and he will delight. In other words, every movement he makes is in delight of obedience by the fear of his God. Who is this? We yearn expectantly to know that. 
Isaiah's people would have been on the edge of their seats. We want this. When is it coming? And 12 brings great praise for that. But it is in distant, though God is there. So 13 through 27 bring judgment on the nations, including Jerusalem. Every nation is judged. It's judged so that there is proof that we should not rely on anything of man. We should trust in God. Chapters 28 through, through basically 35 bring the same, though they, they really place it in, in two realms. Don't rely on the strength of Egypt, who was a rising power at the time, but oh, if we think back to the Exodus, why would we want to go back to Egypt? Don't do that. It's, it's foolishness. Instead, rely on God, because that's where true wisdom is. And in the midst of that, in chapter 32, we get another picture of a king, a glorious king, who will reign righteously we begin to look for those things. 34, 35 is our final kind of contrast of this. Chapter 34, there's, there's global judgment. So much so that it's difficult to read, but you can't read 35 enough. Because in chapter 35, this, this one who's coming, this justice that will roll over, brings new creation. The globe is transformed. But then 36, 37, 38, and 39 become narrative. Back to the scene of the world, things we really can relate to. It's a story. It's a story of Hezekiah and the Assyrians are at the door. They, they've taken everything except Jerusalem. And they mock Jerusalem saying their God is truly the God of the earth, not Yahweh. And in that mocking, we find what looks to be a faithful king, Hezekiah, for he prays. And this is documented not just in the Bible, but extra biblical material is, there's a plethora of it. That Sennacherib has basically, quote unquote, his own language. I have Hezekiah as a bird in a cage. And then what no source can seem to explain. 185,000 Assyrian troops die outside the gates of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is spared as Sennacherib goes home. 20 years later, he'll be killed by his own children. How did that happen? If you read this weekend, I read the encyclopedia version of that. We believe it was a plague It's the unseen who holds sway over all of eternity, doing what he says he will do. And yet when we get to 38 and 39, those chapters are chronologically misplaced. They, should, they actually occur before 37, 30, I'm sorry, 36, 37, because we find Hezekiah desperately ill and praying and, he, and he's given relief. He's given 15 more years to live, from which will come a king named Manasseh, his son, who will terminate Isaiah's life, have him sawn in two. But we begin to see that there's also hints of, of his frailty, of Hezekiah's, in that, in that while he was praying for that, he's also, guess what, turning to Babylon, who is rising in power under this king who's called the son of their god, Marduk. And as, and as Hezekiah shows him everything that's in his treasury, 
God speaks through Isaiah and says in the end of chapter 39, you will be taken, your nation, your, your sons into exile. And so chapter 39 ends in darkness again, utter aloneness. We read from that Psalm today that, that speaks, how can we sing from the rivers of Babylon? That's what happened. Because of Hezekiah's faithlessness, Exile occurs, and not only that, it says that your children will be made to serve. My text says something like be servants in the house of Babylon. It means to be made eunuchs. It means the, the Davidic lineage is threatened again. And when we really see that in the seen world and our world becomes so pressed, we say, how can we go on? How in the world are we going to rise up out of an exile from this huge foreign power when everything around us says contrary to anything but hope, when we hear Isaiah 40, a voice out of nowhere, comfort, comfort my people. On the heels of exile, he speaks comfort in, in duplicate. He wants you to feel that mercy. He wants you to understand, call out to her that her warfare is ended, that her sins have been forgiven, and that her penalty has been paid twice for. It's over. Comfort my people. Speak to her heart. And this comfort then explodes in three voices, the first of which basically says, clear the way of the Lord. And every gospel has John the Baptist being this voice. Clear the way of the Lord. What are we clearing it for? God is coming. He's coming here to the very place that we've kind of messed up. He's coming, and then the glory of his, his own glory will be revealed. The unseen will be seen. But you got to wait on it. And so we begin to, to hear that, that, that what shall I say then? This is going to happen because the word of the Lord endures forever. And, and what does this one look like who's coming? What does this unseen God who's going to be seen look like? He's full of might and power, and his arm rules, and his rewards are with him. But he's a shepherd who tends his flock, who gathers his lambs, who carries them, and who leads them like they're nursing babies. This is God. This is the one who's coming. But in 41 and 42, there's wavering among the people because all we know is what we can see. And so we hear the people of Israel say, why do we say this but my way is hidden from the Lord. In other words, he doesn't see me. He's not here. The justice do me escapes the notice of my God. He's not, I don't see him anywhere. That's the people of God. In chapter 41, we, we get the surrounding area that's so full of comforts of their own idolatry that God says, bring them in. Bring your idols. What do you got? Well, what do you lean on? Bring it here. Make it speak. Tell it to do something, either evil or good. I don't care what, just, he basically mocks him and says in a trial, do something, whatever you rely on. And he says, they are worthless. God pronounces judgment on them. They're, they're more, they're useless. He says it twice. They're an abomination because he's the one that has aroused one from the north. And he begins to look at the Medo-Persian Empire 
and name it in chapter 45, that this one named Cyrus will be used by him to set the people free from Babylon. No, you're not going to use a pagan to save me. You're not going to use this or that or that. No, I rely on myself. But that's the issue. Unseen versus seen. And out of that desperation and, and, and unclarity that, that they have in their own head, God says, here's my servant. And chapter 42, verse 1 opens the first servant song. Here is my servant whom I uphold. I take him by the hand, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. That's baptism language of, of, of someone who's baptized by John the Baptist who I won't reveal yet. That's transfiguration language. Listen to him. He's my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the servant. This is the one you learn to look to. This is the one who's coming. Ultimate fulfillment of justice and righteousness is coming. And what will he look like? He will bring justice to the nations. There's the word we've been looking for. That right standard, not forensic judgment of, oh, you're, you're done for, you're not. No, this is a way of life, of righteousness, of, of, of God being with you, of, of walking in his ways, of equity where, where the most marginal are treated just like the hive society. It, it's, it's the way things are in heaven, so let them be on earth. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. And how will he do it? He will do it with the spirit that's placed on him. He will do it by not screaming or crying out or raising his voice. The nuances of those languages. He won't startle. He won't, he won't oppress. He, he won't, by the forcefulness of, of the tongue, push someone down to nothing. He won't raise his voice in the street. In other words, he won't advertise. He, he won't be self-promoting. In other words, he doesn't look like any leader we have ever seen. Who is this humble one? Who, as he goes by, we'd have to say, which one is he? He's a servant who serves the broken and the marginal. A broken reed he will not crush. And a wick that's about to lose its life, smoldering with smoke, he will not extinguish. That's me. I'm a broken reed and a smoldering wick, even when I'm on top of the world. But this servant reaches that person. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. The truth that he has is experiential with God. And he will not be disheartened or crushed. In other words, this, whatever he's doing, it's going to be tough. It's now we begin to get hints that, that this isn't going to be a, a joy ride for this servant, that it's going to take great effort, and that there's going to be resistance. But he will not be crushed until he brings what? Justice to the earth. It's a global mission. It's got Israel involved, but whoever this servant is will bring justice on the earth. So much so that the coastlands, the distant places, those who are far off, wait, like we are in Advent, wait expectantly for his instruction. They can't wait for him to speak. Like the king we saw taking the seat in Jerusalem earlier. 
they can't understand this, and, and they look for the scene, and they don't want Cyrus to lead them out. And, and so they, they complain against God, and they, they say, why have, you, why have you done this? And, and we feel alone. They, they actually confess that in, in, in chapter 49. And God says, I've never left you. Listen to me. I've not left you. He, he basically compares to, to, to holding them at, as a mother holds a child. And then he calls back to those distant places in the second servant song. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you people who are far off, because the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. Who is this? Who is this? Whom the angel said, you will name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Who is this servant? Who then says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword that the weapons of this servant who is coming are not brandished with, with iron. They are, they are the words of his mouth. He doesn't come with an army. He comes with his tongue. Who is this one? Who is this one who, who is hidden then in the shadow of his hand? In other words, unlike the axe of Assyria who, who forgot who, who held the axe, this one only moves if his Lord brandishes him. He's in complete obedience. Who is this one who then says, he has made me a select arrow, but hidden me in his quiver? The messianic secret. Going to keep him hidden until time, and that time becomes Mark 14, 62, when the high priest says, are you the Christ? I am. Until then he holds him as a select arrow that penetrates those hard hearts that are so self-reliant. But this is who he's described as. And therefore, God looks at him and says, you are my servant Israel. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Now understand this showing of the glory. If 13 times in the Old Testament, 12 other times, it is God himself who manifests the glory. So who is this one? He is fully God. He is fully the glory of God. And yet in his humanity, he speaks next. Surely I have spent my strength for nothing. I have toiled in vain. In other words, his mission to the earth is going to look like a failure at first, but my reward is with my God and the justice due me is with the Lord. You will see that it's a success, but in his humanity, he feels beat down, used. For now, says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob and Israel, the nation, back to them, that that is too small a thing, slight in the Hebrew, like, like it's light, it's nothing. Therefore, I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The light that went out in chapters one through nine, and in, in, in particular in, in that first place, Galilee, is coming back on. And it will start there and it will be a light to the nations. It will extend to the ends of the earth. Who is this servant? 50, chapter 50 opens the third servant song to, to try to give us a little more clarity in this. The Lord has given me the tongue of a disciple. Now notice, now he's a learner. He's a disciple listening to his God, listening to the Father. In the first servant song, bringing justice, it's a king duty. In the second one, he is equipped with the tongue. 
He's a prophet. Now he's a disciple who walks daily with the Lord. He, he says that he gives me this tongue that I might know how to sustain, to soothe, to move with help toward the weary. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord awakens me morning by morning. Notice these aren't ecstatic dreams. These aren't things of his own thoughts. This is an intimate relationship between father and son and an instructing that, that allows the Lord God to open my ears so that I'm not disobedient, nor do I turn back. In fact, I give my back. Here comes the trouble again. I give my back to those who would beat it. This is the, an image of one in that culture who is beaten for being a criminal. Who is this? I give my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I don't cover my face from humiliation or spitting. The Lord God helps me. That's why I'm not ashamed. I'm not disgraced. This will work out. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. Luke 9, 51. I am on mission because the Lord helps me. And if you hear this, draw near. Behold, everyone who condemns me, they will wear out like a garment in time. They will fade but I won't. So here's the dilemma. Who is among you who fears the Lord and obeys the servant? Who hears the servant? They also walk in darkness and have no light, but they have the light of life. They walk by faith, not by sight. Let them trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The others, those who kindle their own flame, th th those who rely on their idols, those who place embers around so they'll know where to go in the darkness, they will lie down in misery. This becomes critical to make the choice on who the servant is. Then we get such a hurried procession to the fourth servant song that we begin to hear, listen, listen, awake, listen in 51 and part of 52. Listen to me, you who are gonna pursue righteousness. Pay attention to me, my people. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart I'm going to write my law. Listen to me, wake up, wake up, put on strength. Listen to me, your watchmen, the voices, see it with your own eyes, awake and clothe yourself. For you will see this with your own eyes when the Lord restores Jerusalem, Zion, for the Lord has comforted his people. How? The Lord has bared his arms. In other words, done it visually in the sight of all nations that all the ends of the earth might see the salvation of God. And now that the sleeves are rolled up and God is bringing forth this one that's been expected, who is this one? Behold, the fourth servant song, behold my servant, just like 42 started, now the final servant song in 52.13 begins. My servant, he will prosper. He is, will be high and lifted up and exalted. Those are words of Isaiah 6. When he saw the king high and lifted up, he's seeing this servant. Seated on a throne, he is king, he is prophet, but his appearance on earth was marred more than any man. He is dehumanized, he is beaten so badly, and his form more than the sons of men. He is wrecked in his mission, and yet he will sprinkle many nations. He becomes priest with his own blood. Who is this one? 
that we wait on, who now is king, prophet, and priest. Three individual offices in Israel that no one would have combined, but the servant combines them all. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they hadn't been told, they will now see. And what they had failed to hear, they will understand. So who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Because he grew up before us like a tender shoot, a a shoot, a sprig, a twig, a branch of Jesse. He grew up before us like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He comes from a place we we wouldn't expect. When you see the the angel headed toward Mary, it, it gives her location, Nazareth in Galilee. What good could come out of Galilee? place that we wouldn't expect it. He looks like something we wouldn't really be attracted to. He has no majesty or shape that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should actually be attracted to him. And he was despised, rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted. His partner, grief. He is like one whom we hide our face from. We hide our face from people that we deem cursed, He was despised and therefore we we esteemed him of no value. Zero. That guy is a zero. But he still comes. The faithfulness of God will bring forth justice to the nations. Surely our griefs he took and bore on himself. Our sorrows he actually carried Ourselves, we, we ourselves esteemed him stricken like smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed to death for our iniquities. The chastening that was to be on us fell on him, and by his scourging, we are healed. The confession of six. All of us are like sheep who have gone astray, each turning to their own way. But the iniquity of all the sheep fell on him. The Hebrew there is of of an army that falls on one target. Every sin ever committed or ever would be committed fell on him. And then, like the Lamb of God who takes those sins away, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like sheep that is silent before his shearers, he does not open his mouth, but by oppression and judgment, by the very thing he came to just, the oppression, no help, and by a justice system that convicted him to death, basically by murder, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of those people to whom that stroke was due, then his grave, he's killed. His grave is assigned with with the wicked, but yet he's with a rich man in his death. And how can these be? Because he is innocent. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He is sinless, outward and inwardly. Who is this servant? Post-mortem, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, Leviticus 5, 6, and 7, the guilt that comes through sin is taken away. He will see this offspring. 
he will see his offspring. The servant is alive. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge of this righteous one. My servant will justify the many. And now I'll spread the rewards with him because he poured out himself to death, numbered himself with transgressors and bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressions. This is the servant. This is the servant who if we are going to be any cognizant thought about it fits only one man that's walked on the face of the earth in all of history. The servant. But it's still so very hard to match the seen world with the unseen God. Don't feel bad. You're not alone. From the beginning... Abraham and Sarah struggle. Promised? Mm, but we can't see it. Then there was this man named Joseph, son of David, who was going to put his wife away because she'd been found to be with child. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, unseen, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He is the servant. Now all of this took place. All of what? I'm only in verse 22. All of this. Three sections of 14 generations of kings and others who are in the line of him. All of that took place, including the five kings of Isaiah. All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the, to the, through the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will be with a child and shall bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. The servant songs, they help me hold the seen with the unseen, especially in times of trouble when they act as ballast in the sea that is stormy. They regulate me. They motivate me. Paul uses it in chapter 15 of Romans. He conflates, there shall come from the root of Jesse one, and he will arise to rule over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles put their hope. It, it helps me motivate mission as he, as he uses Isaiah 52. This is why I aspired to preach the gospel where Christ had not been preached because they who had no news of him will see it and they who have not heard will understand it. It makes me steady. It motivates me, but more than anything, the servant songs give me hope. Hope. That, that, that the God who said he was coming came and the God who said he's coming back will. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word that lasts forever and the truth that is found in it that is, that is recorded not just biblically but in history.
You're the God who holds sway over everything seen. And you have provided your servant for us to take away the sin that we have been desperately lost in that darkness. So Father, we praise you this morning for the words of Isaiah and the way they have literally cascaded down into history. We praise you in the name of the servant Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message in the Advent Sermon Series from the Access Church in downtown Nashville. To hear more, visit theaccesschurch.org.